Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 28th. Uh, 2022, the last day of February. We're going to go back a little bit uh, as an introduction to this show. The great uh, British neurologist uh, uh, Oliver Sacks uh, died in 2015. Many of you will be familiar with his remarkable work. His last piece uh, for the New York Times in February, actually almost exactly seven years ago, was entitled my own life. He knew he was dying and he wrote, um, I cannot pretend I'm without fear, but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much and have been given something in return. I have read and traveled and thought and written. I have had an intercourse with the world and the special intercourse of writers and readers. And I guess that intercourse has been rooted in his senses because he writes in his final short paragraph for the Times. Above all, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet. And that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. This notion of being a sentient being is one that we're going to be talking about today. How do we learn about our sentience? We've, we've had a number of shows about our relationship with the natural world. I had the great naturalist Carl Safina on the show. Um, he had a book out, or he has a book out called Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise His Family, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. Uh, Safina suggests that we humans can learn much about ourselves from animals, and we've had lots of shows uh, about what we can indeed learn from animals. But what we're going to be talking about today is how we understand our our essential being, our sentience from animals. There was a wonderful piece uh, earlier this month written by the British naturalist Jackie Higgins uh, entitled uh, for LitHub, Worlds Unseen and Unimagined on Learning About Human Senses Through the Animal Kingdom. Uh, it was a piece from her new book, Sentient, um, What Animals Reveal About Their Senses. This um this cover came out in the UK, but uh, and it has uh, the the the, uh, the subtitle is "What Animals Reveal About Our Senses." Uh, the book is just out in the US. It's called Sentient, uh, but it has a slightly different subtitle, perhaps more dramatic for the American market. How animals illuminate the wonder of our human senses, and I'm thrilled uh, that Jackie is joining us from uh, Northern Kenya. She's also uh, a much accomplished and experienced, um, as I said, naturalist and filmmaker. Jackie, what are you doing in northern Kenya? Well, we've, I've just been um, climbing Mount Kenya and looking at all the wildlife on the way up, all the miniature chameleons. And I'm happy to be back down where the air is less thin. Um, and I've been looking at rhinos this morning, black rhinos and white rhinos. I'm staying in a conservancy called the... Lewa Barana Conservancy, where unusually black rhinos, which are very endangered, outnumber white rhinos. So this book, uh, Jackie, the book that's just out in the US, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses, 
is a series of chapters about how you look at animals, literally, metaphorically, scientifically, and what we can learn about them. Um, every time you climb a mountain, every time you see a new moth or a, a beetle or a, or a bird, do you think of sentience on your way up and down from uh, Mount Kenya? Um, I mean, I'm endlessly curious about the, the wildlife that I see, but yes, I do. I wonder what, um, I wonder what their experience of reality is. Um, I've always been interested. I used to make wildlife films. And when I, I worked for a company called Oxford Scientific Films, and um, when I started, there was this amazing natural history series called Supersense. I don't know whether it reached the American market, but it was all about how animals saw, smelt, heard, um, and, and sense the world, um, which is half of the story in Sentient, because um, I use animals to better understand ourselves. You cite at the beginning of the book uh, Aristotle's On the Soul, which was one of the first and most profound attempts to make sense of our senses. How much have we learned since Aristotle? Or could you read Aristotle and pretty much uh, learn what we know today? Well, I wouldn't dare to comment on, on um, aspects beyond the senses, um, but certainly, well, I meant in, in the context of the senses. Senses, yeah, I'm sure, sorry. But certainly we know a huge amount more. Um, uh, science has unveiled um, the workings of our bodies, the sensors that are the little um, cells within our, sensors within our body that detect external information and translate it, convey it to our brain where perception's built. I like to think that um, Aristotle would be really intrigued to learn and to realize that he was mistaken when he said we only had five senses. Today, neuroscientists say we have as many as 33, um, all served by different dedicated sensors. So um, I explore 12 of these in the book. Right. And this 33, I mean, what's the debate, um, uh, Jackie? I mean, is it conceivable that in another 100 years, we'll learn we actually have 333. Why do we need so many senses? So I think understanding and perceiving your world is vital for survival. Um, an animal that can see and smell um, is able to interact with the world, able to find mates, able to um, find food, able to avoid predators. Um, and of course, all animals have different habitats and adapt their sensory um, um, experience according to their needs and, and um, you know, their habitat. Jackie, I, of course, cheated a little bit with this Sachs quote. It's in your book. Um, and when he concludes, above all else, I've been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet. You quote this in your book too. Um, do all these senses add up? Is it, are we like computers where each of our senses contribute to some overall ontology, overall sense of the world, or, or do they all exist in a kind of parallel? No. So, I mean, some scientists would say it's even foolish to try and tease apart the different senses because our perception of the world, as we're looking at one another through the wonderful um, restream, um, that perception, various, we're using various senses to create a multi-sensory um, experience. 
So our senses are wedded together, like a, or woven together like a tapestry, really, to create um, our multi-sensory perception. Um, but I thought it was fun I, 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 and interesting. I think it's quite interesting to split apart the different senses. When we're sensing the world, because it's such a mundane and everyday experience, we forget how we forget about our hearing. There's the other quote I use in the, in the, in the book is the Leonardo da Vinci quote about we um, 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 we we do not uh, sorry the, the quotes we hear without listening. We, um, we the idea being that um, we are. Um, we, we forget, um, we take for granted the way that we're sensing the world. Sorry, I got thrown. It's late, it's late at night here in Kenya. No excuses, um, Jackie. <laughs> terribly sorry. But um, so it's so, I, I, in teasing it apart, um, I'm drawing the reader's attention to the different senses and these miracles that they perform for us on a daily routine basis that we take for granted. Yeah, and your book is, in that sense, miraculous, uh, sentient, how animals illuminate the wonder of our human senses. It's something that I've been reading this morning. It's stuff that we just, as you say, take for granted. We take for granted our senses. But you have this remarkable story of a man in the book uh, called uh, Ian Waterman, who quite literally lost touch. There's a, a number of pieces uh, I've been reading about him. Movement Without Touch, The Life of Ian Waterman. So Ian Waterman existed in a world without sentience, right? And so he sort of contextualizes the world that you're trying to describe. So he 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 absolutely has sentience. He has a very different experience of the world. Right. I, I didn't mean he didn't have, but, but not being able to but He touch. doesn't have... Yes, and not simply touch. He's touch blind, so um, he couldn't feel if you stroked his arm. He, if he takes a cup, he can't feel the kind of smooth topography or the coolness of the cup. Sorry, the camera's focusing on the cup. Um, but, but beyond that, he's, he's, he's lost a sense called proprioception, which is the sense of body um, that we all have this idea that when we close our eyes, we know where our body is to the to the point that we can touch our, our fingertip to our nose with our eyes closed. And so Ian, when this virus attacked his body and he ended up in hospital and kind of came through from um, having a fever with his eyes closed, he had lost completely lost the sense of his body um, as if he was disembodied. Um, of course, other senses have had to kick in in order to fulfill the role that this sense um, um, So plays. yeah, so that, that was, I was curious, um, mm. Jackie, if you lose one or two senses, does that strengthen your other strength, uh, senses? So you always get, you always hear the, the, the stories, I'm not sure if they're true, that blind people, for example, have a particularly strong sense of touch. Yes. So that's one of the stories in the book, actually. I, I In the Star-Nosed Mole chapter, um, we meet Eshref Armagan, who was born blind and yet he's an artist and he swore that he could um, see through his fingertips. Um, his brain was studied by Harvard scientists as he was feeling objects and drawing them in a brain scanner and they learned that his visual cortex, the part of the brain around the back of your head, which essentially um, um, processes all the visual Im imagery that's entering my eye right now, 
Um, that, of course, lit up. Of course, his visual cortex lit up. Um, so had a neurologist who didn't know who was in the scan walked through the door, they would have said, that person is seeing something. Of course, Ian is completely blind and always has been. So it's this idea that the brain never lies fallow. It's always um, using the information um, that it's being fed and making use of that. So Ian, so um, Eshref's um, sense of touch, it does enable him to see the world to some degree. I mean, depends on how one defines sight. If it uses your eyes, he doesn't see, but if it uses your visual cortex, he sees. Yeah, in a funny way, this is scientific explanation for extra metaphysical experiences, perhaps even uh, for religion. One of your great teachers is Richard Dawkins. He's also, of course, very controversial for his work uh, about what he calls the God delusion. Do you think your book, uh, Sentient, how, and, and I want to get into the details after the break, individual animals and individual chapters, but do you think this would make religious people less religious or non-religious people more religious? Does God enter here at all? Is there a place for God in sentient? Um, I mean, my book is very much about science, using science to explain how we perceive the world. Um, those, those words that you mentioned of Oliver Sacks, actually, as you say, were in the beginning of the book, but they became like worry beads on my, I, I, I had them pegged above my computer while I was writing the book. Um, and they were like my daily worry beads because this, this sentiment of, you know, the joy and the gratitude of being a sentient animal. We are sentient animals. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that that joy and gratitude that, that um, Oliver Sacks was referring to is explored and celebrated in the book. Um, so I well, let me go back. Let, let me rephrase the, the Dawkins question then, because yeah. it's an important one and a controversial one. D do these series of senses which you write about, which we can learn about from nature, do they make more sense of our metaphysical ambition, of our, our lust for an idea of God? And, and, and perhaps one might even ask the question, could we imagine that animals themselves are religious? Um, I, I would never ask that question. I mean, I'm. Well, I'm I can ask I'm... a question because I'm not a scientist. That's <laughs> a kind of dumb question, but I can ask you it. You can I, I, you can? Um, no, this is a this is a thoroughly scientific endeavor, um, and um, I look at the senses. I mean, our experience is about is scientifically explained. There is no need for. A meta metaphysical explanation. Um, I mean, consciousness. So that, that puts you in the Dawkins camp. I am guessing. I am. It does. It Good, does. Good, Jackie. Well, I'm talking. It's a wonderful conversation. I'm talking with Jackie Higgins, who just happens to be in northern Kenya. She's made time for us. It's evening there. How uh, her, her new book out in the U.S. Sentient: How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. In it's itself a wondrous book. Um, we're going to take a, a short break, um, Jackie, and then afterwards I want to talk about some of the chapters and some of the animals that help us make sense of our senses. So uh, stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many 
different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Jackie Higgins, uh, the British-based zoologist and filmmaker and author of this wonderful new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. There are 12 chapters in the book, each dealing with a, a different um, animal and sense. Uh, I have to ask you up front, um, Jackie, which is your favorite chapter? <laughs> oh, it's a tough question. Probably the last. Now, that's my business, tough questions. <laughs> Probably the last. Um, but... Um, on the on the common octopus or the duckbill platypus, we have talked about Ian Waterman and the sense of body, and I use the octopus, which has this exceptional sense of body. Um, here we have a wonderful more. image for you know if you're if you're just watching this, you're sensually uh, sorry if you're just listening to this, you are sensually deprived because you're not able to see this beautiful picture of the octopus. <laughs> I think that's a cuttlefish, but oh, what? <laughs> See what but I similar. Know. I do Very have similar. a picture of an octopus, though, Jackie. <laughs> there we go. There and we go. So I mistook my are... my cuttlefish for my octopus. Go on. I, the, the picture of the cuttlefish was even more beautiful, but um, but they but yes, they have. They're called nature's Houdini. They're able to pour themselves like liquid through cracks and crevices. Um, because they don't have any bones in their body. The only thing that constrains them is the, their beak, their hard beak. Um, so they have an exceptional sense of body. And, and so I use, um, um, the reader will learn how, how that creature senses its body. And I use that to explain how we sense our body. But in I'm Yeah, In a sense, could you argue that the, the octopus doesn't have a body? Or doesn't so, feel, I mean, does the octopus we, feel that it has a body or it can just sort of go anywhere and do anything? So the, 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 um, the legs have are autonomous in a way. The leg will be going off and doing something of which the brain is not aware of. 
um, it, the octopus uses its eyes to gain awareness of its of its limb of its um, of its limbs or arms. But um, in the same way that that Ian has had to learn in order to move, having lost his sense of body, he had to use his eyes to take control of his body in order to basically relearn movement completely. I mean, he's probably studied motion, regular human motion, more than any other person through history. Um, yeah. The most, uh, the names of some of these animals are, are themselves remarkable, which perhaps reflects our ability to come up with names because they didn't name themselves. I think my favorite name, though, is the, the spookfish. Mm. And the spookfish in, in your chapter deals with what you call our dark vision. Tell me about this spookfish, which does indeed look intensely spooky. Spooky. It's found down deep in the ocean in uh, the bathypelagic part of the ocean where very little light filters through um and it was discovered well it was discovered a while back but its eyesight was only ever was only recently looked into um in the last few years and when scientists first kind of heaved it up from the depths they thought it had four eyes um and vertebrates with with four eyes don't exist so that in itself was exciting but they realize that they it uses in each of the two is one it's like one split eye um but it enables that fish to really um have lots of rods these are the sensors that are also on the back of our eye that when the light goes out enable us to almost see in the dark they're very very sensitive to light so i split vision in a way talking about aristotle earlier i've split vision into two different senses by looking at the cones in, in our retina that enable us, that grant us color vision, and the rods that enable us this kind of um, sight at twilight or at night, scotopic um, vision, which is dark vision. Uh, how is, in the overall architecture of, of life itself, in a Darwinian sense, is there any connection between our dark vision and the dark vision of the spookfish, or is that just coincidental? No, entirely. It's because we have these, we share common ancestors. Um, absolutely. I mean, endlessly, I was, I was finding similarities between us and these other creatures of, it's not um, where we've independently evolved uh, rods. We share a common ancestor where the rods evolved and it's, it's more evidence of evolution. Um, and throughout, I was, I was um, endlessly surprised by the similarities. I mean, I look to the animal kingdom as our wider, um, our, our wider family tree. I mean, Andrew, you and I are related to some degree, but we're also related to every other creature that crawls, leaps, slithers, soars, um, and to plants um, and microbes. So, so yes, there are endless um, connections that, that web us together. Well, I know you're in... Uh... Kenya at the moment. Uh, did you come across, have you come across any cheetahs? I know there's a special chapter on cheetahs, which are certainly one of my daughter's favorite animals when we go to the zoo. Uh, why is the cheetah so interesting in terms of our senses? So we all know the cheetah is the fastest land animal, but um, what a, a sense that comes into play. And when actually, when you watch these beautiful creatures chasing gazelles or impala, it kind of makes sense. They have exceptional balance. So I use the cheetah to illustrate our sense of balance. Um, and studies have been done on the inner ear, which is where our balance and its balance organs are. And um, they've revealed that it's, it's completely different from all other cats. 
it has um, its semicircular canals, two of its semicircular canals are enlarged um, that enable it to be incredibly sensitive to any vertical motion. So essentially when that cheetah is chasing an impala, its eyes lock on the prey and the head doesn't move in space. You've got its body kind of careering beneath it, scooby-dooing, and the body is like a gimbal or, or like a steady cam, completely locked on target. A gazelle-seeking missile, as I say. Yeah, it's scary and miraculous. Everything is miraculous. Scary I think, in your book. Um, <laughs> this peacock mantis shrimp is one of the... There are two animals in the book named peacock, but this one is particularly miraculous because who would have imagined that a, a shrimp makes sense of our sense of color? How can shrimps help us make sense of our, 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 our ability to distinguish color? So I talk about this. This is the story about cones I was referring to earlier that enable us color sight. We have three different types of cones that enable us to see all these colors um, that we see in the world, many more than we probably give ourselves credit for. Um, but the, the shrimp has 12 color photoreceptors. So scientists thought that it had the most extraordinary um, um, color sight. It, it also has uh, color um, uh, expertises that we don't have, it's, or, or rather light expertises. It can see UV, it can see polarized light. It's the only creature on planet Earth that can see circularly polarized light. So these, um, these goggle eyes are absolutely exceptional. But, but we're back to the um, 12 color photoreceptors. Um, you know, the shrimps were said to have a, be able to see a thermonuclear bomb of beauty because people imagined that they saw with those 12 color, um, color photoreceptors much, much more color than, than we do. So I use the color photoreceptors to kind of engage in our cones and learn how we see color. Um, what transpires um, when the scientists actually tested shrimp sight out by, by, um, by dangling little bits of crab and testing, um, training them to certain color, to behave a certain way with certain color lights and watching what colors they could and couldn't see, actually they had much worse color vision than we do. So they're using these 12 photoreceptors in a very different way to us. Um, Jackie, uh, we can hear and see each other. You're in Africa, I'm in California. We can't touch each other because we're on the internet and we certainly can't smell one another. Uh, you have a a fascinating chapter on the bloodhound and the uh, our, our sense of smell. I'm, I'm curious what we can learn from the bloodhound. And I'm also curious in terms of this kind of online conversation, what we miss when we can hear and see each other, but we can neither smell nor touch one another. Does that undermine the the quality of this experience between you and I? I think so completely. I mean, the bloodhound was very as a chapter about our conscious sense of smell. So, I would note what you were, you, you know, how how you were smelling. Whereas I used another chapter, which is a moth, about um, smells that we are not necessarily aware of. Um, and I explore pheromones and whether there is um, a human pheromone or not. Human pheromones become. This a bit is of the a giant. Uh, I'm, I'm getting all these animals, uh, not the octopus. This is the uh, the giant the peacock great moth. That's yes, relevant or in the this giant thing. peacock moth of the night. Um, but yes, so the bloodhound um, talks about our conscious sense of smell 
and um, and slightly kind of we think we're we're not particularly good at smelling, um, and that these creatures are far superior than us, and they are in certain aspects. But also there are certain aspects that we're that we are superior with regards to smelling. Um, we're able to list many more smells. They may have a more sensitive nose, but we use our brain to um, make our noses quite 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 extraordinary. We also they did this rather um, eccentric experiment on the uh, on the lawns of. Um, the University of California, Berkeley, where they got people to pretend to be a bloodhound, where they got rid of their sight and their hearing and their sense of touch by putting knee pads on and asked them to follow a trail of uh, um, twine that had been dipped in the essential oil of chocolate. And people were rather good at tracking like a bloodhound. Of course, bloodhounds are far better, but there are aspects of our smell where we are, we are also very good. Jackie, um, where... You mentioned the University of Berkeley at California, uh, University of California at Berkeley, of course, uh, it's just up the road from me on, on the edge of Silicon Valley. The big thing in Silicon Valley these days, as I'm sure you know, is the metaverse, Mark Zuckerberg's attempting to own virtual reality. What do you think, if, if virtual reality becomes quote unquote real, I, I, was at, I was in Los Angeles at the weekend, I spent some time with a friend's child, a 13-year-old who spends their whole time in the metaverse. What is it going to do to our senses, to our sentient nature? Um, I think we will miss out on, I think there's a, I mean, touch. um, There are two chapters in my book on touch, but the second chapter is about, I split touch into the idea of feeling something like that glass I explored, but also being felt. Yeah, the star nose owl. The star-nosed mole. Oh, star- whoops, star-nosed <laughs> and the mole. Vampire bat. vampire bat is the chapter I'm talking about with regard to pleasure and pain. And um, one of the scientists in there, a chap called Francis McGlone, would argue that touch is not a sentimental indulgence, but a biological necessity. And he, he rails against the demonization of touch, and he's anxious about the untold consequences. He's, he's convinced there'll be untold consequences. Um, excuse me, because of COVID and the um, the isolation that we've had to be in and, you know, old people not seeing families. Yeah, he and- would say we need to go back to the office, for example. I've got Julia Hopsbaum yeah. next month talk, so celebrating the end of the office. But you're saying the physical is essential or you and your fellow scientists. Absolutely. What might happen to us if, if, if we lose these senses by spending all our time in the metaverse? Well, I think scientists, there's a, there's a term called touch starvation. Um, and I think it has, you know, psychological effects. So, um, so I would worry for our psychological health. Um, I think, I mean, the sense that I thought was almost the most interesting. So you asked me to pick a favorite chapter. Yeah, I come on with it. Your second favorite. That's the one we're going to end with because there are so many. And it's a fabulous yes. book, uh, Jackie. <laughs> Congratulations again. Thank you. But but touch is almost I mean, we look to the stars or we look to the ocean as the, as the kind of, you know, our last frontier or just to, to space. And I would argue that our skin is a, a last frontier with, you know, the, the the science and the new science that I unearthed researching this book, discovering new senses in our skin that are fundamental to our sense is this of the mold? Is this the one that. This is I... not. We're still on the vampire bat. Pleasure and pain. Um, The star-nosed mole is the much more obvious sense of touch, the idea that um, I can feel that glass. 
Um, I can feel the difference between the corrugated roughness of a walnut or the smooth, smooth, cool coolness of a ball bearing. Um, and that little mole that you just popped up on your screen, the star-nosed mole, fits in my hand. It's tiny. And that little star that you see on the end of its, I its nose, um, which has um, the, the mole is almost blind and it uses that nose to feel its way through its underground burrows. Anyway, that little, that little uh, appendage is the most touchy-feely organ in, the ma in mammalian in, in, in mammals. And yeah, so, I'm going to resist um, making any vulgar jokes about that. <laughs> it's tempting. Uh, and no, what's sorry, you set me up and I'm not going to take that one. Um, <laughs> Bravo. You mentioned Da Vinci earlier, man, perhaps more than anyone else, who was both a great scientist and an artist. What's the role of art in all this? Don't artists recreate these senses? And in a sense, when we're sense-deprived, as we might be, for example, in the metaverse, it mm. makes the role of the artist more important. Do artists have stronger natural senses, a da Vinci, a poet, a, a novelist, a filmmaker like yourself? Well, I don't know whether their senses are any different to yours and my, to, to yours and mine, but they take time to explore that sense, be it a visual artist or a musician, a, you know, or a, um, or a or a poet, beat rhythm or a sculptor, touch. Um, so I, I don't know, and maybe there are there, there are cases where people do have exceptional senses, but but I would probably argue um, I would I would argue that basically it's what we all have, but someone's really focusing to get to know that particular aspect, that sensory uh, talent, um, and to really explore it and um, enable it to flourish. Uh, Jackie, uh, most of our audience is a, is a bookish audience. Your new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Sense, is just out in the US. It's a must read for anyone who's intrigued by, by any of this, which I think all humans should be. But you're also a filmmaker. Where else can people see your work, your, your movies uh, and your other creative work? So I, 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 made, I made wildlife films for Oxford Scientific Films for, um, and the films were for National Geographic and for the BBC. Are you the next Attenborough? <laughs> that would be wonderful, but I suspect not. <laughs> we do need a new Attenborough. Well, um, we certainly do. Maybe we'll have more than one Attenborough. You'll certainly... What is it about the Brits that make them such good naturalists? I don't know. I mean, there's a long history of it. Um, it's an From interesting Darwin history. onwards, or probably before Darwin too. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it didn't used to be a difference between, you know, all walks of life were interested in science, you know, in those days, just curiosity. Um, and, and also, I, I mean, our wildlife, we often look beyond our shores to look at the wildlife, but the wildlife of Britain is, is fabulous. Um, you know, I'm so just maybe, uh, maybe your next book, Jackie can be on what we can learn from British wildlife. Anyway, your new book is Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. A wonderful conversation, Jackie. Last day of February 2022. What else should people be reading in addition um, to, to your new book? So these you were saying new books. Well, I was... Well, it doesn't I have to be a new book. It can be an old book. It can be Isn't Darwin, it? for all I can. Uh, I mean, I would have said Oliver Sacks, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I love that book. Um, wonderful suggestion. I don't have yeah. an image of it, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the great classics of modern scientific literature. Yeah. Um, and in my bag at the moment, I've got um, Empire of Pain that I'm looking forward to reading. 
Yeah, well, that's a miserable book, but an important book. I've had him on the show. <laughs> I'm in um, a and... place. I need a bit of misery. Yeah, well, you probably, you're lucky enough to be in northern Kenya. Keep safe, Jackie Higgins. I'm, uh, and congratulations on this, this wonderful new book, at least for the U.S. market, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. A final question, uh, Jackie, I'm asking all my guests. Jackie Higgins, the author of uh, Sentient. Jackie, um, who runs the world? Who's in charge? The star-nosed mole. <laughs>